You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. And shivers down your spine Shrieking skulls will shock your soul Seal your doom tonight Spooky, scary skeletons Speak with such a screech You'll shake and shudder in surprise When you hear these zombies Hello and welcome to Oh No Lit Class The podcast that warns you That darkness falls across the land The midnight hour is close at hand Creatures crawl in search of lit to terrorize y'all's reading lists. <laughs> I'm one of the happy haunts of Oh No Lit Class, your ghost co-host, Megan. I'm usually RJ, but this time of year, I'm Count Jacqua, the ejaculation <laughs> vampire. Yup. As opposed to the rest of the year, you're just... Um, just RJ. Yeah, just ejaculating like normal. Yeah, not like a vampire. <laughs> nope, just like a regular person. Listen to our ejaculations on literature. As opposed to your regular ejaculations. Well, this show's about literature. <laughs> Listen to our other podcast. This <laughs> is just about ejaculating. Well, we could have other shows, ejaculating about sports, ejaculating about SCOTUS, that'd be timely. Well, you started that. We had Oh No Law Class. You did precisely one of those and then decided you didn't want to do it anymore. I blew my load. <laughs> well, you know what? We're stoked as hell to blow our load on another year where we spend the most spirited month celebrating literary thrills, chills, spooks, and scares. It's an 11-month cooldown, a.k.a. refractory period. <laughs> oh, I fucking love Halloween. <laughs> yeah, ejaculate some more over it, why don't you? I will. You know what? We've got some absolute bangers for you this month, folks. But before we can get to the book at the center of this episode, RJ, I've, I've, I've just been handed some unsettling news here. This is me being handed news. That's what this sounds like. What is it, Meg? <laughs> Break it to me softly. No, I, I can't do that because I have to warn you that the Phantom of the Opera is here, inside your mind. Don't know the guy. But you're, you're gonna learn about him. Oh, okay. Because we're kicking off this October with the long-requested Le Phantom de l'Opera. Okay. Yeah? Yeah? That's what you got? Got like half a face or something? Yeah, he's got precisely none of a face, but we'll get there. <laughs> Because uh, that's the thing, before... So I was half right. <laughs> yes. Uh, before it was the longest-running Broadway musical, which was then turned into a movie where Gerard Butler sounded like someone was slowly running over his foot with a snowplow, it was a tale of gothic horror by French writer Gaston Leroux, first published in serial form before being collected into a novel in 1910. And so I guess you've kind of answered this question. Uh, what what do you know about the Phantom of the Opera, RJ? I think my exposure to Phantom of the Opera would mostly be based on, I don't know if you get into this in adaptations, I don't know if I've just dreamed this up, but either Looney Tunes or Looney Tunes Jr. definitely covered Phantom of the Opera. 
Uh, Tiny Toons. Tiny Toons. And yes, um, I didn't look it up because, well, because I didn't look it up, but what was the, the green one? The little green duck? Plucky. Plucky. Yeah, like Plucky Duck. Yeah. In like the little half mask, like playing the organ or so something. That's why I thought half mask, because it's really... Well, the ha- <laughs> yeah, the half mask is the iconic thing, and that's because of um, like the musical and stuff, but definitely Tiny Toons. <laughs> Definitely did not have to read the book in school. Was not aware of the book for a long time. Like most people, I would assume, only aware of the property through the musical and through cartoons parodying versions of the movie or the musical. Are there a lot of those? There are so many. <laughs> did The Simpsons do it? Yes. Okay. But yeah, no, um, a bunch of people have wanted us to do the Phantom of the Opera, and when it, it came out, it was a gothic horror book. And so, Halloween, let's, let's kick it off, right? LaRue was a millionaire playboy tur- turned journalist theater critic man, and, and this would eventually become his uh, most famous work and and then eventually be completely eclipsed by the version where the title character sings and dances and also a character extremely significant to the plot disappears completely because they decided that he was too brown but you know we'll get there before we can learn about the man behind the weird phantom half mask thingy we have to learn about the man behind the phantom Gaston Louis Alfred LaRue was born May 6th, 1868, National Tourist Appreciation Day, and died April 15th, 1927, Tax Day. Days that live on those calendars with all those wacky days on them, like National Hoagie Day, National Take Your Dog for a Walk Day, and Veterans Day. This is how I can tell when you <laughs> you found like a, a real lean biography. <laughs> You ever hear Veterans Day? Yeah. So, you may have guessed that Gaston Louis Alfred LaRue is French. Well, do I have news for you? Oui, oui. He is. Sacre bleu. No swerve. (laughs) I was hoping for one. Yeah, you'd be like, but actually he was Argentinian. (laughs) LaRue considered his hometown to be Paris. But in actuality, he was born in the middle of nowhere. You see, his parents were traveling from Le Mans to Normandy by coach, a 78-mile trek, when all of a sudden his mother, Marie Alphonse, thankfully did not wet herself, not that there's anything wrong with that, but rather became drenched with amniotic fluid. A baby was coming out. Is this called when your water breaks? Yeah. Well, at first, maybe you think you pissed yourself. I don't know. I mean, maybe that happens. I, I don't know. If people have crotch fruit, I still don't understand them. <laughs> I don't know how giving birth happens, and I intend to never find out. The coach was between train stations, but that baby was not going to wait, and so the coach was stopped, and Marie was carried to the nearest house, where she gave birth to a healthy Rue. I think you shit yourself also when you give birth. I've heard that. Well, you're pushing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you could push in the front and not the back. I think it just happens. It's so dignified. (laughs) Later on, the house Rue was born into was converted into an undertaker shop. When Rue decided to visit the house to see where he popped into this world, he remarked, There, where I sought a cradle, I found a coffin. Oh my god. (laughs) What the fuck? He's a fun guy. I like him. (laughs) (laughs) He captures the mood. 
you know, I do kind of wonder how that went. Like, hey, uh, you know, I'm just kind of here looking around. Oh, coffins. You know? They're like, what could we help you with? He's like, I was born here. <laughs> Funny story. By the by. The Rue's early life was one of privilege. You see, Gaston Louis Alfred Larue Perret, a.k.a. the father, was a successful shipbuilder in Normandy. So money was not an issue for young Rue. Given his father's occupation, Rue spent a lot of time near, in, and on the water. And he excelled at swimming, fishing, and developed into an excellent sailor. Rue's intelligence was considered to be above average, and he did relatively well in school. While Rue was happy to follow in his father's footsteps, his parents, like most parents, wanted something better for him. They wanted him to become a writer. <laughs> no, no, just kidding. Why would parents ever wish that dreadful dream onto their child? Obviously, if any sick fucks do, they haven't listened to this show. Can you imagine? No, his parents wanted Rue to become a lawyer. Off to law school, he went where he excelled. He impressed his teachers. His peers found Rue to be likable and gregarious. All signs pointed to Rue becoming a successful lawyer. In 1889, when Rue was 21 and about to springboard into a career in the law, two things happened. One, a sonnet he wrote and submitted was actually published, giving him his first success at writing, which had only been a hobby up to that point. The other thing that happened, his father died and left him the equivalent of approximately a million francs. The anti-Keats. Yeah, he knew about this money. Exactly. Losing <laughs> a parent is a tragedy, and it was for Rue. And we all cope with tragedies differently. So there will be no judgment here, only cold hard facts. Rue went on a bender, and not a short one either. He went on a six-month bender. At some point it becomes unclear how much of this was done in grief, and how much of it was done by a 21-year-old who was now financially independent with a million francs in his pocket. He stopped school altogether. Instead, for six straight months, he was in gambling dens, nightclubs, and theatrical playhouses. Given his easygoing and gregarious nature, he made an assortment of new friends, acquaintances, and connections. One biographer refers to the groups Rue fell into as, quote, dissolute, albeit interesting. <laughs> Fucked up, but neat. After six months, it all started winding down. Not because Rue had a great epiphany, or thought it was finally time to settle down and get back to work. No, it was because he burned through his entire inheritance and was broke. Not ideal. Holy shit. By the way, a million francs brought up to today's U.S. dollars is somewhere between three and five million dollars. Like this kind of extravagant spending would make even Buzz Bissinger blush. <laughs> Listen to our episode on Friday Night Lights if you do not understand that reference. That's a good reference. Can you imagine bowling through <laughs> that much money in just six months? I think it would become a chore at some point. How about yeah. you, Mick? Yeah, it does seem like it would become kind of exhausting after a certain point in six months. I mean, you're talking somewhere between twenty and $40,000 a day. Yet you'd have to work at it. You'd have to put some real fucking effort in. Or if, for all I know is he waddled on up to the gambling table and maybe I like, just pushed in like, you know, half of his money on like one spin of the roulette wheel. You could get rid of money pretty quickly. Some of us put it all on black to cope. <laughs> but so by the end of this, he was penniless. Holy shit, dude. So in a way, he was like Keats, just different circumstances. <laughs> Maybe Keats would have blown through his hidden dollars. 
But Rue did learn one very expensive lesson at the end of this. Being an upstanding lawyer was not for him. It was too clean and too limiting. No, he wanted to be among the riffraff, the people with open minds, souls, and bodies. He wanted to become a writer. While Rue's greatest work is associated with the theater, he cut his writing teeth as a journalist. He actually became well known as an investigative journalist because he would go to great lengths to get the stories he wanted. Case in point, there was a man on trial for a crime that Rue believed the man did not commit. But based on his legal education, he believed the man was being legally railroaded towards a conviction as a result of incompetent policemen and shoddy legal work. He decided to go undercover to crack the tale. To do so, he posed as a prison inspector, created fake credentials, and went into the prison to write his story. I'll let Rue take over from here. Quote, I got my paper to publish a full report, which completely exonerated the prisoner. And as a result, the prefect of police was disgraced, and the prison director was sent packing. Curiously, it was my newspaper colleagues who were the most annoyed. I had interviewed an accused man in prison before his trial. It was something that had never been heard of before in law reporting. That fucking rules. This helped catapult Rue's standing in the world of journalism. He was sent as a correspondent around Europe to get the interviews no one else could. And when he did get them, his write-ups pleased the reading masses. During the Boer War, a war between Great Britain and two South African republics, in which Britain was still Britaining around the world, Rue wanted to interview British Colonial Secretary Joseph Chamberlain. Chamberlain did not want to be interviewed. So... Rue made his way into Chamberlain's private study on his own and waited for Chamberlain to show up. <laughs> How the fuck did he do that? He just helped himself in, snuck <laughs> his way in, broke in. I like to imagine he was sprawled out on the couch, making like a come-hither motion with his fingers. Sadly, when Rue was found, he did not successfully seduce the Chamberlain and was summarily ejected. This did not stop Rue from writing an article, just maybe an article different than he originally planned. It was titled, quote, How I Failed to See Chamberlain, which, according to writers at the time, delighted French readers and was widely hailed as a masterpiece of good humor and wit. Gaston LaRue biopic when? <laughs> Soon, hopefully. Seriously. I don't know how they haven't already. Yeah, for real, though. <laughs> Rue became known as a man, quote, who could get a story out of even the most unlikely situation. Others said that Rue, quote, proved himself an ingenious storyteller with a flair for pace and excitement. Rue certainly enjoyed being a journalist and seeing the world, but he began to think about settling down. He found a wife, Jean, and wound up having a couple of children with her in between traveling to places across Europe and Africa. After a long and exhausting journey to Morocco, the night he returned home, his editor called Rue at 3 a.m. and told him he needed to get back on the road to go cover France's largest battleship blowing up. Rue thought about being woken up at 3 a.m., looked at his wife and kids, seeing them all sleeping soundly, and he decided, fuck this noise, told the editor no, hung up the phone, and went back to sleep. <laughs> Big dick moves. The next morning, Rue decided he should take his talents to writing novels. <laughs> he experienced his first success in the genre with The Mystery of the Yellow Room in 1908 when he was 40. The star of the novel was Joseph, who has a last name. <laughs> oh, does he now? Rouletabille. Joseph Rouletabille, who Rue would write about in about a dozen other works. Rouletabille was a journalist that doubled as an amateur detective who outsmarted the police officers on the case. I guess write what you know, eh? 
Rue did uh, supposedly add a specific plot device to the detective genre, have the least likely culprit wind up being the culprit. Every time. <laughs> Swerve! Hey, somebody's gotta do it first. <laughs> Literary critic Howard Haycroft wrote of The Mystery of the Yellow Room in 1941 that the novel is generally recognized on the strength of its central puzzle as one of the classic examples of the genre. For sheer plot manipulation and rationization, no simpler word uh, will describe the quality of its Gaelic logic. It has seldom been surpassed. It remains, after a generation of imitation, the most brilliant of all locked room novels. A locked room story, by the way, is the type where the action the protagonist is trying to solve happened in a room that has no way in or way out of, thus a locked room. Rue did admit that he was heavily influenced by Ono Wikwasalam, Edgar Allan Poe, and specifically the murders in the Rue Morgue. You know, the one in which the orangutan done did the deed? Spoilers. Swerve. <laughs> no one ever suspects the orangutan. Rue stated that he wanted to out-Poe Poe. Rue wrote about a dozen stories that revolved around yeah. Joseph Rue I already forget. Old Joey R. And even though The Phantom of the Opera dominates his biography for critics of the genre, Rue is still remembered in the field of detective fiction for his contributions. He is considered by many to be right up there with Poe and Arthur Conan Doyle. Most of Rue's works were initially published in serial, bit by bit, in newspapers, including the focus of today's episode, The Phantom of the Opera. In many ways, as Megan will discuss, The Phantom of the Opera is completely different from The Mystery of the Yellow Room and much of Rue's detective work. Whereas detective stories focused on reason and common sense, the Phantom is deep in horror and superstition. Instead of locked rooms, there are dark and secret passageways. On the surface, there is little in common between his detective works and his late gothic novel, according to critics. Although some critics do say that when you do an analysis of the mystery of the Yellow Room, you find the text to be littered with gothic elements, like strange animal cries in the night, sinister caped figures that seem to vanish nowhere. Brave young women set upon by evil forces. Meanwhile, in the Phantom, the ghost winds up just, quote, being a man of heaven and earth. That is all. Phantom was written in 1909 with its complete published uh, form arising in 1910. Modern researchers have written conflicting reports as to the initial success of Phantom. Some say it was good. Others say it was poor. Overall, it seems as if the reception was okay. It was not what the world was expecting of Rue. They found it to be stylistically very different from what he had done prior. So that may have thrown off the masses a bit. In particular, French audiences did not like it at all. Reception was better elsewhere in Europe and overseas in America. As Megan will discuss, what had the story take off is when Universal Studios bought the rights to the story in 1925 and made a silent film. That did not really phase Rue all that much. He just kept doing what he was doing, found success with his writings and characters, by the time he died in 1927, he had written 37 novels, which is quite an achievement since he'd only been writing novels since 1907. So 37 novels in 20 years. He's also credited with nine short stories and two plays. Fifteen of his works have been adapted for the silver screen. All in all, we think of him as just a guy who isn't Andrew Lloyd Webber, who's involved in The Phantom, but he was actually quite accomplished in his own right. The end. It's a pretty slim bio, but already more interesting to me than the Phantom of the Opera book. 
as we're gonna find out. <laughs> oh, you could write the biography <laughs> oh, on Gaston Leroux. That's what I'm saying. I, I wanna I wanna watch a movie about this dude because he sounds awesome and I probably need to go read the detective short stories since they're apparently super different from this. Apparently they're very much like Poe and Arthur Conan Doyle. And I like those a lot. Alright. The Phantom, as he is operated. So the whole novel is told from, and it makes sense sort of knowing that he's a journalist, it's told from the perspective of a narrator gathering evidence to solve a mystery. Um, Write what you know. Yeah. Having gathered letters and and old papers and things, and he's interviewing people um, to prove the existence of the Phantom. And the narrator is based on the prologue explicitly LaRue. The prologue itself serves to establish a no but for real, this actually happened, guys, tone. No, no, but really, the title of the prologue is In which the author of this singular work informs the reader how he acquired the certainty that the opera ghost really existed. And the first sentence is The opera ghost really existed. Oh, we're going to get more into this after your summary. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, it sets up major characters, you know, people to be interviewed, letters in LaRue's possession, a young singer named Christine Dye who went unaccountably missing for some time, a dead count, some ghostly shenanigans... A corpse found in the opera house, a mysterious man known only as the Persian, whom LaRue visited, who apparently told LaRue, quote, everything about the mysterious opera ghost and then died five months later, etc., etc. It's never enough to just, you know, tell a fucking story in these things. It always has to have a framing device. And I get that it's setting a mood, but it's also like, nah, bro, it's real. My uncle's best friend's cousin's former roommate works at the opera house. Believe me, etc. That's literally a line in the prologue. Not the uncle thing, but believe me, etc. Just as its own sentence. I know that the opera house is real. Like, it's a real, the setting that he uses is a real opera house that was purported to be, like, haunted and shit. So I know that there's more to it than just, like, framing device, but still, it's annoying. You kind of set it up. You could just tell the story. Because it's more explosive when it's true. (laughs) Um, Now, to the book's credit, the first sentence in chapter one... Is it the ghost? Is not, it's the ghost. (laughs) But that is the first line of dialogue. It's the ghost. Uh, The chapter opens on Messieurs Dabian and Poligny. I'm going to do my best to not butcher all the French names, but it's probably going to happen anyway. It's on their last night as directors of the Paris Opera House, and it's meant to be a festive occasion, but just after the curtain has fallen on the evening show, a gaggle of young ballerinas burst into the dressing room of Sorelli, another more senior ballerina. I don't know why, but I just had like this visual of like a larger ballerina with smaller ballerinas clustered around her legs like baby ducks or something. Gotta keep them safe. Yeah. So they run into her dressing room, they slam the door, and one of them's like, It's the ghost! And Sorelli's like, huh? Except, you know, they're French, so it's probably more like, quoi? And uh, all the ballerinas insist that they just saw a ghost. Well, not a ghost. The ghost. Specifically, the ghost that everyone and their mother, like literally half these ballerinas are there with their moms, they've been seeing all over the dang opera house lately. Ever since one of the stagehands, a dude named Joseph Buquet, uh, who the narrator informs us was a, a solid, sensible man. And not a flighty teenage ballerina girl prone to, I don't know, vagina-based hallucinations or something. Tonight. <laughs> on Oh No What Class. We uncover the ghost at the opera. 
is there a ghost? What's he look like? Well, what will he do when he catches you tonight? Oh no, no, Lickhans. According to Joseph Buquet, he saw a man with a skeletal head, yellow skin. Fuck, that was fucking. Yeah, see, I'm good. Yellow skin and no nose. And ever since Joseph saw him, you can't swing your arms in the opera house without smacking someone who claims to have seen the ghost float through a wall at them or stare at them from a corner before disappearing or waggle his fingers at them terrifyingly while they were trying to pee or other such evil ghostly behaviors. Also, one time his head was on fire. Apparently. Gnarly. (laughs) And they think they hear a sound at the door and they all shriek, Mon Dieu, it's the ghost! Except Sorella's just like, that's dumb. You're all dumb. And she opens the door and... It's not the ghost. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. That's the scariest thing of all. It's true. (laughs) It's the first chapter. LaRue's not gonna blow his load that early. And Sorella's like, see you big babies. But one of the ballerinas, a girl named Little Jem, is like, but the ghost is real. Gabriel, the chorus master, saw him. You know the Persian guy who just sort of wanders around the opera? And the others just nod like, yes, of course, obviously. And she continues saying that the Persian came to Gabriel's office. And usually they're very polite to each other and say hi. But instead, this time, Gabriel had a series of fucking Looney Tunes-style accidents that I'm just gonna read verbatim because it's absolutely hilarious. Quote, Well, the moment the Persian appeared in the doorway, Gabriel gave one jump from his chair to the lock of the cupboard so as to touch iron. In doing so, he tore a whole skirt of his overcoat on a nail. Hurrying to get out of the room, he banged his forehead against a hat peg and gave himself a huge bump. Then suddenly stepping back, he skinned his arm on the screen near the piano. He tried to lean on the piano, but the lid fell on his hands and crushed his fingers. He rushed out of the office like a madman, slipped on the staircase, and came down the whole first flight on his back. I was just passing with Mother. We picked him up. He was covered with bruises, and his face was all over blood. We were frightened out of our lives, but all at once he began to thank Providence that he had gotten off so cheaply. He then told us what had frightened him. He had seen the ghost behind the Persian. The ghost with the death's head, just like Joseph Buquet's description. Gabriel fucking wily coyote didn't fear. He was like, ah, he smacked into that. And he banged his thing and he like fell down the fucking stairs. It's tough sometimes <laughs> when you see a ghost. You never know how you might react. <laughs> and this, yet another ballerina with little in front of her name, Little Megjiri, says that people, specifically Joseph Buquet, 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 I don't know. She'll probably shut up about the ghost because her mom says that the ghost says it doesn't like being talked about. And her mom knows that because, oh, I shan't say. And they're like, well, why shan't you? Oh, I just shan't. The ballerina's like, oh my God, get over yourself. We have plot to get to. And she tells him that her mother, Madame Giri, is in charge of keeping a private box empty for the ghost's viewing pleasure by order of her bosses. And while the ghost has never been seen in the box, Madame Giri has heard him in there enjoying opera. Even. And the ballerinas are like, "Um, okay, that's weird. But what does that have to do with Joseph? And just then, little Jam's mom comes running around the corner and she's like, OMG, girls, you'll never guess what's happened. And what do you think's happened, RJ? Someone laid marbles out on the floor and they were all tripping on him now. No. Like home alone. No. In fact, the ghost is Kevin McAllister. Yes. 
Yeah. He set all this up. He's he's haunting the opera house. Yep, that's it. (laughs) Kevin! (laughs) Kevin! Joseph Buquette has been found dead. Hanging. Wow, Kevin's never gone that far before. (laughs) Kevin's getting real dark. He has been found hanging in the third floor cellar. I'm not sure how a third floor cellar works exactly. That seems kind of like an oxymoron and might be chalked up to something lost in translation, but still, it is extremely spooky. What's more, when they went to try and cut him down, they found he was no longer hanging and the rope had vanished, which means it must have been the work of the ghost. Or I guess some opportunistic dickhead who saw his body and was like, ooh, cool rope, which is also very spooky. Yeah. (laughs) After this incident, Sorelli and her roaming gang of ballerinas go to find her boyfriend, Philippe Georges-Marie Comte de Chaunier. Putain de merde. Anyway, they're all like, Philippe, Philippe, ghost, dead guy, spooky, scary skeleton on the loose in the opera. And he's like, yeah, that's cool and all, but wow, did you hear that girl Christine Daae sing tonight? She was amazing. Nailed it. And Sorelli tries to explain that a man has literally just been found dead. And Philippe is like, yeah, but she was really good. She's like fucking Beyonce out there. And the narrator slash LaRue. I guess, comes out and was like, it's true. She was. Fuck that dead guy. <laughs> and Christine apparently stepped in for the opera's usual powerhouse, a woman named Carlotta, who no one likes because she's mean. And Christine sang so good that everyone in the audience was wondering why the directors never let her sing before. And all the ballerinas know the answer to the question is that Christine never used to be all that good at singing. Hmm. A mystery. She started taking lessons, I don't know. She did, but who wants us to think it's more mysterious than she started taking lessons? But whatever, time enough for that later. For now, let's learn about Philippe. Here's the 411 on this French nobleman. He's fucking boring. He's rich and middle-aged. Perfect. More importantly, he has a brother 20 years younger than him named Raoul, which... If I didn't already have an image in my head of bland Patrick Wilson ruining it, I'd say is a far sexier and intriguing name. Bonjour, mademoiselle. I am Raoul de Charnier. I've definitely never starred in a movie with a stupid evil doll in it, or one where my significant character trait was my inability to get a boner. I am Raoul. Was that the doll movie, too? <laughs> it could have been. <laughs> I don't remember. Raoul. Shouldn't fuck the doll. I'm going to fuck Annabelle. I am Raoul. <laughs> so Raoul is also there with Philip that night, watching Christine go full A Star is Born, and he decides that he's fallen in love with her because we're told, actually, forget that whole impression I just did. He's a dumb, shy baby. Probably a virgin. Hell, this might actually be his first boner ever. So he's like, oh my god, Phil, pretty girl sing good, must go say hi. And he goes down from their box to try and see her after her performance. And he's like, hey, hey, Christine, guess what? We actually knew each other when we were kids. Isn't that funny? Don't you remember me? I jumped in the ocean once to catch your scarf. Isn't that cute? Wasn't that cute? Aren't I cute? Hello, I am Raoul. I knew you when we were children. This is no longer a French accent. I used to get boners then. (laughs) I caught your scarf once and I I touched my dick to it. Aren't I cute? Raoul. And literally everyone laughs at him, including Christine. And it's like, okay, you know, 
you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, but you think at that point, you know, you'd take the L and call it a day, but no, Raul keeps going and says that everyone else in the room should leave so he can tell her something very important. In private. Yeah, presumably what he'd like to do to that puss. Christine agrees that yes, everyone in the room should leave, including him. (laughs) Everyone should get the fuck out. You too. So he does. Except... He doesn't. (laughs) Kind of. Look, I mean, like you said, Meg, you miss every shot you don't take. And even if you miss the first one, you keep banging it into that goalie. Eventually, one's going to squeeze through. <laughs> Gross. You get one of them greasy goals, you know? Ew. It's a squirter. Find its way in. Please stop saying words. Maybe between the legs? No. Or what? Maybe not between the legs? Yeah, under the arm? Oh, no. Right by that glove hand? Uh. Or maybe right off the face? I hate in. sports. So the more we learn about this little shit in, like, such a short span of time, the less and less I like him. Like, I don't think character's ever gone from, like, ooh, he has a fun name to, like, I hope he gets murdered in such a short span of time in my personal feelings. Except, because I know the story, I know he doesn't get murdered, which is a bummer. So here's why. Everyone leaves, but he hangs around in the hallway like a creep. And then even the maid, like, leaves Christine's room. Uh, like her dressing room and he's like oh uh, how's she doing in there like i know she had like a big night and all and the maid's like yeah no she's doing fine but don't go in there because she explicitly has asked that she not be disturbed and raul hears this and his horny little baby brain is like ah yes of course she wishes to be left alone for me because i told her that i wanted to talk to her in private obviously clearly this cannot mean anything else yeah (laughs) holy shit raul the mental gymnastics the galaxy brain at work incredible i think he's gonna get one past the keeper he's in (laughs) all alone uh before he could just he deeks to the left (laughs) before he could just let himself in like v-count pervert de chagnier deeks to the right he hears something it's the triple (laughs) d he hears a man's voice in Christine's room. Gordon dun, Bombay. Does <laughs> anybody can get that reference? <laughs> Come on, I went up with the triple D. That's <laughs> <laughs> for all you Mighty Ducks fans out there listening. <laughs> if you make it sound like there's just a few of them. So in my telling of Phantom of the Opera, she's Julie the Cat. He's Adam Banks. And he's trying to use the triple D to get by Julie. But Gordon Bombay is instructing her on how to be prepared for this move. And also, Gordon Bombay is the phantom of the opera. Oh, the yellow skin is cirrhosis from all the alcohol that Gordon Bombay's been drinking. (laughs) It all fits together. And now, I really want to hear Emilio Estevez sing music of the night. (laughs) I've cracked the code. You have. Mighty Ducks, just a <laughs> modern retelling of Phantom. Clearly. <laughs> I have to recover from this. Quack. 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 In fact, that's what he hears. <laughs> yeah, he leans in to listen in. <laughs> he hears a voice going, quack, quack, quack. quack. And Christine leaves the room alone. 
Amrul hides and jumps into her dressing room to, I guess, beat this guy up for daring to be with the girl Raul knew once when he was a little kid and decided ten minutes ago that he's in love with. But, alas, there's no one there. They find Veed right out of there. (laughs) God damn it. Does this going to be the gag now? The fan, oh, yeah. the fan of the opera is Emilio Estevez. <laughs> specifically from the Mighty Ducks. Oh, look. <laughs> it's at in Breakfast Club. After those, I, I'm struggling. Well, yeah, after those, so was Emilio Estevez. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Meanwhile, at the retirement party for the managers, Dabion and Poli, Polignier, uh, slash welcome party for the new managers, Monchamin and Richard, Everybody apparently just collectively decided to not tell them about Joseph Buquet's death so as not to, you know, bring down the mood, which is insane. Not only did a man die, he's presumed to have been murdered, but everyone's just like, oh, come on, let's not get in the way of their big night. Exactly. (laughs) Except. Except. Except the ghost. As you might assume, and we'll find out anyway, is a big needy bitch and shows up at the party. In a limousine that he drove right across the ice like an asshole. (laughs) You're putting everyone in danger. (laughs) Gordon, no. You know, and his brother, Charlie. (laughs) Charlie, Charlie Sean. (laughs) He shows up. He keeps blabbing about tiger blood. <laughs> keeps doing eight balls. Um, he shows up at the party in a special little outfit and his fancy little... It has a big duck on it. Yeah, it has a big duck on it. It's, it's green just... <laughs> and yellow. <laughs> We're never going to get through this. His fancy little phantom mask thing that gives him like a fake plastic nose or whatever. Oh, see, it's like one of those Jason... It Borges, is! It's one of the Jason Borges hockey masks! <laughs> That's it. The phantom mask is just a hockey mask. <laughs> and it gets cut in half because he took a puck to the face. Yep. It's all coming together. He's wearing the mask and he he says, well, he says it a touch more obliquely for, for all intents and purposes. is like, hey, I killed Joseph Buget. Hey, notice me. Notice me. <laughs> me. And uh, Monsieur's DNP are like, um, what? <laughs> And everyone else is like, uh-oh, um, mm, yeah. About that. Yeah. And then the phantom disappears, and the new managers are just like, is this a bit? <laughs> are, are, you, are you guys doing, like, a, a gag? And uh, DNP are like, mm, okay, so we may have neglected to mention this while we were signing all the documents and whatnot. There is a ghost. He can be a dick. He does wear a hockey mask. Just, you know... Change all the locks to stuff that's important. Keep box five open for him for performances and <clears throat> pay him 20,000 francs a month. And then you guys are like, excuse me? Excuse and, moi. <laughs> excuse moi. And the old monsieur. manager. Monsieur. <laughs> you must surely be joking. And uh, the old managers are just like, not our problem anymore. Bye. <laughs> and the uh, new managers decide that this is fucking stupid. Also, they're definitely renting out box five because they do what they want. They're wealthy white men in the 1880s. They haven't had to face a consequence in France in like a hundred years or something. 
But as they get to work doing opera manager things, they receive a letter signed, well, so I read this on uh, Project Gutenberg, and that has it translated as signed OG for Opera Ghost, which I think is extremely funny. <laughs> Yo, it's the OG. <laughs> uh, apparently other versions have it as P of the O for Phantom of the Opera, which is also a delight. No, it's OP. It's the original poster. <laughs> uh, but I do like OG. So this letter from the OG states that he knows that they're very Old busy. Gordon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Old Gordo. <laughs> Old Gordo. He knows they're very busy. He doesn't want to be a nuisance or get things, you know, off on the wrong foot. But A, Carlotta sucks and can't sing. So B, get her out of there. And C, put Christine in. And D, here are some songs that she should be singing, actually. And while they're at it, F, stop selling my fucking box, because I know the old man just told you not to do it, you little shits. Shape up, or I will have my ghostly vengeance, etc., etc. Hugs and kisses your terrifying undead roommate, the Phantom of the Opera. So they follow his directions, read the talent, but rent out box five to the old manager, still thinking this is some kind of weird gag but they never check to see if they show up. The next day, they get two letters. One from the old manager saying, <laughs> no fucking way. And another from the old OG saying, great show, loved it. Also, where's my 20,000 francs, bros? Ghosty wants his money, which honestly should have tipped people off pretty quickly that he wasn't a real fucking ghost. Like, what the hell does a ghoul need a monthly stipend for? Just because. <laughs> like, why does a ghost, like, be like, yeah, give me, like, $20,000 a month for my ghost needs. To show that you respect me. It's a matter of respect. Yeah, and just let that money, like, pile up and, yeah. and mold away. Exactly. It's, so it's a respect. Those I mean, are some tasty needs. <laughs> yeah, also, dude living in the basement got some expensive fucking needs. <laughs> but then I guess when you find out, you know... He's got all his fucking expensive, stupid little booby traps. He he does run up quite a bill. (laughs) Anyway, Monsieur's M and R are like, this this bit isn't funny anymore, guys. And they leave box five open for sale again, only to have the people who bought it run out screaming, saying they could hear a disembodied voice claiming that it's occupied. But still no one's seen the ghost. And M and R are getting real pissed that they've apparently inherited a fucking episode of Scooby-Doo. So they asked Madame Giry, who was previously in charge of attending to Box 5, if she ever saw the guy, and she's like, well, no, but I heard him. He asked me for a footstool once. Also, he used to leave me a tip after the show was over, but you guys pissed him off and ruined that shit for me, so thanks. Also, apparently he had a lady in there with him, which raises a whole host of questions. Yes, many of them ghost dick-based. And she says she knows this because the woman left a fancy fan behind once, and Madame Jury made sure to bring it back to Box 5, and the ghost thoughtfully left her some non-ghostly chocolates for her trouble. So, you know, on the one hand, hangs a dude for the crime of, I don't know, looking at him. But on the other, leaves a nice gal some chocolates. Listeners, though, I want you to remember this. Remember this for later. This is important. About the ghost, and the lady, and the fan and shit. Remember this. We're coming back to it. The two managers think about how Madame Jury has probably had the most contact with this mysterious, spooky individual, and the ghost definitely likes her way more than the average opera employee, and they go, Madame Jury, you're fired. Fuck you, got, you gotta do it right, Meg. No, I won't. You can't fucking make me. You're fired. And they decide to just wait in box five themselves, because they're really bad at Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Dooby-Doo. <laughs> 
Where are you? Then in the middle of all this bullshit, Christine just stops singing for some reason. Mid-Rising Star just, you know, cancels all her performances and goes reckless. But this has not stopped Raul from trying to fuck her. Because of course it hasn't. And he sends her a bunch of letters until finally she sends him one back like, Yes, God, I remember when you got my fucking scarf. Yay you. I'm gonna be at a graveyard for the anniversary of my dad's death later. And Raul's like, hell yeah. Nothing gets a girl in the mood to bone like her dead dad. Mary Shelley. No, that was her dead mom. Oh. Totally different vibe. Big diff. On the way there, he remembers a story they heard from her dad growing up about the angel of music, a being who would bless characters with extraordinary musical talent. Christine's dad, a violin player, promised he would send this angel to Christine after he died. Boy, I sure hope some catacomb-dwelling murderer doesn't take that nice sentiment and make it fucked up and horny. The two meet, and Raul gets pissy that Christine does not immediately profess her love and or hop on that dick. And he's like, I guess I'm not as cool as the mysterious man in your dressing room. Hmm. She's like, what? No, that was the angel of music, Raul. He gives me voice lessons. It's not a sex thing. She gets mad and runs away. He helps me clear my chi. (laughs) Meanwhile, back in the Scooby-Doo storyline, the managers examine Box 5 but can't find anything weird and go ahead with their plan to watch the next opera in it, which will be Faust. Before the show, they get another letter from the Phantom that literally opens with, So it is to be war between us? War. (laughs) (laughs) What it is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Uh, Further demands that the box better be ready for him. Christine better sing the lead instead of Carlotta. Madame Giry better be hired back, and bitch better have his money. And that if these demands are not met, this performance will be... Cursed. How do you think he'll curse it? Based on the documentary Mighty Ducks 3, he's gonna get a (laughs) long hose and pipe in carpenter ants. That would be pretty bad, yeah. I would say, uh, instead of Faust, it becomes Mamma Mia. Mm. (laughs) Pretty similar tales. So, the managers at this point are fucking fed up, and much like Ray Parker Jr. before them, they ain't afraid of no ghost, and decide to go ahead with the show and their plan, and let the Phantom do his worst. Carlotta thinks Christine is out to steal her parts, and brings her friends to the show to cheer her and boo Christine. Earl is there, even though Christine asked him not to come, and oh god, he's, he's fucking crying too. Like, he's just sitting there and fucking crying. This is just embarrassing. Are we supposed to be rooting for him? I guess a genuine question, because this little piss boy is very different from the one that I'm at least vaguely familiar with from, like, the musical slash movie, and I hate him. And I legit don't know if LaRue is like, yes, hate the piss boy, or if I'm supposed to empathize with him. Also in the audience is the woman who the managers are planning to have take over for Madame Jiri as the new box attendant. Why does this matter? You'll see. Gotta protect that box. (laughs) Gotta protect the box. (laughs) You don't let the fine vegan in there. No. So the Phantom does two things. One is something to Carlotta that makes her suddenly unable to sing. She starts making croaking sounds and the audience starts getting upset. And the other thing is that the air in Box 5 grows cold. And the managers hear a disembodied voice in their ears. And it says, Ba! Ba 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 ba! Ba ba! No, no, I mean, he, he says, she's singing to bring the chandelier down. And the chandelier does come down and it goes, Psh! and it crushes the woman who was going to replace Madame Giry to death, <laughs> which is pretty fucked up because she didn't do anything wrong. Like, 
it was the managers who were going to replace her, but no, just murder a random woman instead. Dick? It's fucked up. No scope. Yeah, really. <laughs> well, everyone's pretty bummed out after that whole adventure. The managers are defeated, Carlotta won't perform, Christine disappears again, and we know Raul and his sad boy boner can't have that. He goes to Christine's house and finds her caretaker, a woman named Madame Valerius, and is like, Hey, I'm Raul, where's Christine? I love her. And Madame V just says that Christine's busy with her angel of music, and Raul's like, oh. Uh, but she assures him that it's not a sex thing, and actually, surprisingly, against all logic, Christine's mentioned Raul before, positively even. But he really should just forget her, because Mr. Angel of Music has forbidden her from ever marrying. And Raoul says he'd like a word with this Angel of Music, and Madame V's like, Oh, silly, you can't do that. He lives in heaven. Up above, where the chandelier was. (laughs) (laughs) But also, Christine has run away with him. Raoul has come to the admittedly not unreasonable conclusion that Madame V is a few chorus members short of a Hades town, and that the Angel of Music is just some musician dude. And Christine has been lying to him and getting that good musician dick. Which, yeah, fair. Raul sucks. I wouldn't blame her and neither should you. He thinks mean thoughts about her being a slut and then goes home and cries some more. (laughs) I mean, so far we're two ghost murders for two sexually frustrated tantrums. And frankly, I'm not yet 100% sure those ghost murders weren't also sexually frustrated tantrums. But then Raoul receives a note from Christine asking him to meet her at the opera's masquerade ball and not to forget to wear a hood and something to hide his face. I mean, it'll probably be like a classic, you know, domino mask, but for fun. I'm just going to pretend it's a cheap nylon Spider-Man mask that you can hear him breathing way too loudly through. Anyway, Raoul goes to the opera and there he sees a man dressed all in red with a sign that literally says, hey, I'm the Red Death, don't fucking touch me. But of course someone does and the man in red grabs him with a skeleton hand so hard the other person screams and Raoul's just like, That seems significant. But then Christine appears and leads him away to an empty box and tells him to wait there and that she loves him. Ooh, honey, no. And Raul's like, really? Only to immediately become distracted at the horrifying revelation as the Red Death walks by and Christine secretly reveals that this strange costume bone man is her angel of music. And Raul's like, I'm feeling a lot of confusing feelings. And Christine's like, well, yeah, me too. I, I think I'm never going to sing again. How do you think I feel? Anyway, stay here. Don't follow me. Why did she even bring him there? I don't know. Obviously, he doesn't stay there. And he follows her to the dressing room and hides in her closet. And he hears her cry, poor Eric. And immediately is like, who's Eric? I'm not Eric. This is bullshit. Why did I even come here? I'm going to go cry again. But before he can the most beautiful music fills the air, along with the most beautiful singing. Here, how about a throwback? Oh. I don't know what this is. Bangering! Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What about this one And oh no, what class throwback! The Phantom of the Opera's just fucking screwing! <laughs> my angel of music! Yeah. Sing for me, my angel! Drop the beat for me, my angel! God damn it! Oh, 
Well, yeah. I'd be really scared if <laughs> that's just what I heard. I would be fucking terrified. So yeah, Roll's hiding in the closet and he hears quack, 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 quack. And Christine smiles and greets Eric and walks towards her mirror and disappears. Dangerous. Raul pops out of the closet, shocked, and uh, three guesses what he does next. Punches the mirror. No. No. He disappears, too. No. He kills himself. Really? Okay. You blew all your three guesses, but based on everything we know about Raul's character. He developed the knuckle puck. That's the secret of my dunks, too. No, he cries. He fucking cries. The only thing Raul has done in this novel so far. Yes. Is he, he cries. That's all he does. All he knows. All he know is be horny, eat hot chip, and cry. <sighs> this book kind of sucks. <laughs> what could possibly happen next? Well, Christine could be back at her house, like normal, pretending nothing weird ever happened. That there isn't and never was an angel of music. She's never heard of a dude named Eric. And that if Raul keeps talking such crazy talk, well... Who knows what dangerous things might happen to him. Dangerous! Then we get kind of like a montage of Raul and Christine getting all giggly and falling in love. Even as Christine keeps going, like, seriously, keep it on the down low. You know who can literally hear everything almost all the time. Also, we can never go in the basement. Also, watch out for trap doors. And Raul's just like, yeah, uh uh-huh, whatever. Let's get secret engaged. Won't that be neat? And they do. Rolo promises to protect her no matter what, and Christine thinks it's a really cute gesture. Stupid and horrendously uninformed, but cute. She makes Rolo promise to help her escape from the opera at some point, and he's like, why not now? And she's like, it's complicated. He might do terrible things if I do, and I'm scared of him. But also, I feel real bad for him, and he's sensitive. But also, he looks like if a pepperoni pizza could die. And Raul is like, Christine, please, tell me your story. And she finally tells us the story of her time with the Phantom of the Opera. Basically, this voice just appeared in her dressing room one day like, Hey, hot stuff, I'm a... Quack, quack. <laughs> I'm a teach you to sing real good. And she was like, Are you the angel of music my papa promised to send me after he passed into the great beyond? I'm just OG. Cool. And for three months, that's all it was until she saw Raul and actually did recognize him. And the voice decided it was jealous and that, guess what? This was a sex thing. And it kidnapped her and she fainted and woke up in the tunnels underneath the opera house, realizing in horror that the voice had a dude attached to it. A dude in a mask who smelled bad and lived on a secret underground lake and was like, Sup, I'm not an angel or a ghost. I'm a man, baby. And my name's Eric. Welcome to my stanky cave. I love you. Listen to me sing beautiful songs, but don't touch my mask. And throughout the story, Raul is completely ignoring all the fucking weird shit. And of course, fixating on, well, did you like him? Did you see his dick? Were you allowed to touch his dick? Did his dick wear a mask? Were you into it? Should I wear a mask? Christine continues her story saying that Eric promised to let her go, you know, eventually. But meanwhile, he made her look at the coffin he slept in, which is some real edgelord shit. Ooh, I'm shunned by society and I sleep in a tomb. Would have been so much better if it was like a race car bed. Room for two. <laughs> and was like, look at this opera I'm writing called Don Juan Triumphant about a cool, handsome guy who 
bucks and will be played by me. Now let's sing together. Like, no wonder Christine decides, like, eh, fuck it, and takes off Eric's mask. Which I do have to wonder at the logistics of. Like, that's kind of a move you see coming. Do you think she just kind of went, like, boop? Do you think she went, like, hey, what's that over there first? Well, she deeped. Oh, right, of course. She was the left, she went to the right. <laughs> Boom, slap shot right off the face. Obviously. Gosh, come on. <laughs> Maybe knuckle pucked it? She might have knuckle pucked. Or she's like the Bash Brothers, like she's fucking like a howitzer. But if he's if he's Gordon Bombay, he would have seen these moves coming. No one saw the knuckle puck coming, man. <laughs> you gotta remember, they were getting their ass kicked by teams like Iceland. <laughs> and then this kid from the stands comes down and shows um this knuckle puck. What wasn't that, um... Shit, it was Keenan Thompson. I believe so. <laughs> Either way, she done did the thing, and, and boy was that a mistake, because as we have stated, Eric looks like Halloween beef jerky if it could get horny and also hate you. She screams, he screams, he makes her touch his face, like, yeah, really get your nails in there, let's make this weird. And then she calls him a corpse man, which makes him run away crying. Dick move, Christine. But also, he did imprison her in his watery incel dungeon, so, you know, no one's really a saint in this situation, am I right? You're right. I fucking know I'm right. Christine tells Eric she's super sorry for taking off his mask and screaming at his cryptkeeper face, and that really, once you get used to it, it's not that bad. And she tells him these things so that he'll let her go, and after two weeks, he finally does. Earl points out that she did indeed go back to him on the night of the ball, and Christine says that was to protect his dumbass since Eric had just seen them together. Stupid, insecure, piss-pants Raul just leans in and is like, be honest now, if Eric didn't look like Deadpool but constructed out of old paper mache, would you love him? And Christine kisses Raul so he'll shut the fuck up. And then a big scary bird chases them and this is somehow the Phantom's fault, I think. <laughs> it's unclear. That's where all the money's been going. The training birds. <laughs> yep. And they start to run, but they bump into the Persian. He's like, yeah, no, run that way instead. And they do. And Raul's like, who even is that guy? And Christine's like, oh, yeah, that's, that's the Persian. He's just around all the time for unknown reasons. He's cool. And they plan to run away tomorrow night after her performance and Raul leaves. That night, he has a vision of burning eyes at the foot of his bed. So he shoots a gun at it, as one does. His brother comes into the room and thinks he's fucking nuts and shot a stray cat. And Raul's like, no, brother, I shot a mad skeleton man named Eric who's trying to steal Christine from me. Also, me and Christine are in love and going to run away and get married. And Philippe has a problem with that. Who doesn't? <laughs> Not the skeleton man part, but the French count marrying a lowly singer of no noble blood and running off to where the fuck ever part. On the evening of, he makes it clear to Raul that if he goes ahead with it, he will try to stop him. But Raul is evasive, and he doesn't say one way or the other. But obviously he's gonna do it, and he goes to the opera house. When he arrives, Christine is on stage doing Faust again, when suddenly, in the middle of her performance, the lights go out. They pop back on a few seconds later, and... What do you think has happened? Party broke out. No. Uh, chandelier fell again? <laughs> yep. She's just... <laughs> <laughs> the Not new, the new chandelier. <laughs> Not again! Christine has vanished. <gasps> Earl that <laughs> is shocking. Earl runs to the manager's office to be like, where the fuck is my fiance? 
But they're extremely occupied with this Abbott and Costello routine involving fake money that the Phantom swapped out for the real money they paid and this extremely convoluted prank that I'm skipping over because I don't care. But essentially the point of it was because he hates them and thinks they're dumb as hell, which, yeah, they are. And it also it kept them conveniently distracted while Christine disappeared. While Chief Inspector Mifroid is dealing with the managers, Raoul runs around yelling for Christine when suddenly the Persian appears from the shadows and taps him on the shoulder, whispering that Eric's secrets concern no one but himself, before disappearing just as quickly. Ooh. Ooh. Cool. Yay. Thanks. Yeah. Inspector Mifroid interrogates the managers and Raoul about who has abducted Christine and is not pleased with the answers Phantom of the Opera and Bone-Faced Angel of Music. So he tries a different tactic and is like, well, we know your brother didn't approve of your engagement and said he'd try to stop it. Maybe he kidnapped Christine, eh? Your brother? Your brother did it? Your brother who's not a ghost? And Raoul, for whatever reason, is immediately good with that and runs out of the office like, yes, I'll chase him down. How dare you, Philippe, only to slam into the Persian again. He tells Raoul that revealing anything about Eric to the cops is only going to put Christine in danger. And Raoul's like, I don't care about Eric anymore. I need to go chase after my brother. He has Christine. She's somewhere. <laughs> and while LaRue does not explicitly say so, I feel like it's safe to assume at this point that the Persian probably mutters like, Wait, seriously? And rolls his eyes before assuring Raoul that no, Christine is definitely in the opera house. Because Eric definitely kidnapped her, and they're gonna go save her, like a couple of fucking badasses with these two pistols he just happens to have on him, and also a master key. Don't ask where he got it, it's not important, just take the gun and try not to be such a baby back bitch. Now if you're like me, and your knowledge of the Phantom of the Opera is limited to kind of knowing about the musical, and laughing at the movie that one time, you may be going, now wait a minute. I definitely don't remember a Persian dude showing up to do a kick-ass rogue buddy cop rescue mission thing in between Gerard Butler sounding like he was having his fingers bent backward one by one. Is this mysterious cool guy in the stage show? No. No, he is fucking not. I would be just as confused as you were I not a massive Lindsay Ellis fan and dutifully watched every YouTube video she puts out, even the weird musical theater ones, because she's amazing, and I love her. And so because she's phantom trash, she actually has a fucking great video that goes super in-depth about the Persian, how, as you'll see, he's extremely integral to the plot, kicks a ton of ass, and he gets completely fucking shafted from the musical, among other things. Love me some Lindsay Ellis. If anyone ever deserved to escape the tire fire that was Channel Awesome and find success, it was her. Anyway, Raul is admittedly suspicious. What's this guy's angle? Why is he willing to risk his life when there is not a woman for him to be rewarded with? Maybe he hates Eric. And uh, the Persian says, eh, not really. And while saying this, he reveals that Christine's mirror is actually just like a revolving door with a, a counterweight, and that Eric actually helped design and build the opera house, which is why he's able to like run around in it like an evil little possum. And uh, so again, this might be a quirk of the Project Gutenberg translation, but he tells Raoul that, quote, in my country... He was known by a name which means the trapdoor lover. <laughs> I mean, if you gotta be known as something, why not? I think it's supposed to be the master of traps, but trapdoor lover is so much. Oh, you don't want to be better. you don't want to be the master of traps either necessarily. <laughs> trapdoor lover is so much better. Anyway, uh, he absolutely refuses to elaborate or give Raoul a straightforward answer about anything. 
but who cares? He's fucking cool and mysterious. And every time Raul starts whining like, oh no, that mirror's not gonna open, or oh, it's dark and scary in this tunnel. Well, where's Christine? The Persian just tells him to shut the fuck up and keep following him. And also keep his hand up near his face so he can't be strangled to death with murder rope. Because that's also a thing. So they creep through the tunnels under the opera house, dodging booby traps and whatnot. At one point, they think they see the fucked up flaming head thing from the beginning of the book and freak the fuck out. But that just turns out to be a dude catching rats. Or more accurately, chasing them out of the opera house with like an old timey flamethrower. Just like, haha, gotcha. You thought it was a ghost, but it's just old Jean the Rat Catcher with his trusty flamethrower. Ha 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 ha. So that's the thing. That happens. Yep. Finally, after like a whole chapter of Raoul whining, are we there yet, and otherwise contributing nothing, the Persian finds a secret passage for them to crawl through that should lead them straight to Eric's weird little goblin lair in the underground lake. Except... Except... Except that it actually drops them into a torture chamber. (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember a song about that in the musical either. I don't think that popped up in Music of the Night. Slowly... Gently, you're in my torture chamber. Also notably, from this point forward through to the next to last chapter of the book, it's told to us directly from the Persian's perspective. Presumably because he's easily the most baller and interesting character, and within the framework that LaRue, the the narrator, was just kind of like, eh, fuck it, I'll let him tell it. The Persian is now referred to as Daroga of Mazenderan. Daroga being a title like chief of police. Although whenever Eric talks to him, he just tosses it around like a name for whatever reason. But anyway, Daroga pauses the action in the torture chamber like, freeze frame. Bet you're wondering how I wound up in this situation. Eric and Daroga used to be friends. Or like, friends? LaRue makes us wait all the way to the fucking epilogue before he clears that one up completely, but suffice to say, Daroga knew that Eric had a bit of a murder problem and had been bumming around the opera keeping an eye on him once he started doing phantom shenanigans. But then after he killed Joseph Buquette, he tried to just row out to the underwater lake, but almost drowned in one of Eric's traps. See, that's, that's where all the money is going. It's, it's trap money. <laughs> trap money. Does it come cheap? He has to do it himself, so it has to be pretty easy to put together. Gotta get high quality parts. But uh, Eric saved him because former bros. And Droga was like, please promise you're not doing murder anymore like you used to back in Persia. Because that's a thing he used to do to amuse the Sultana. Dual guys condemned to death and rope murder them. Because even if LaRue was being very progressive, making Daroga the coolest character in this book, it was still the early 1900s and Orientalist racism was the hot thing. And Eric was like, no murder, I promise. And Daroga extremely did not believe him. Especially not after he saw Eric kidnap Christine the first time soon after. So when she disappeared, he vowed to help Raoul bring Eric to justice. Except now they're in a torture chamber. Oops. They hear on the other side of the wall Eric declaring his love for Christine, and how they're gonna get married, and why is she crying? This is a good thing. He loves her. Love is a happy thing. Quit being such a fucking buzzkill, Christine. Gosh. Is this because I kidnapped you again, or that my face looks like Groot's butt? Which one? Then there's a sound of someone at the door. While Eric goes to see who it is, Raul yells to Christine and she yells back that Eric is completely flip shit and that if she doesn't marry him, he will definitely murder everyone, including himself. Also, she's tied up, so she can't help them out of whatever situation they're dealing with. 
Eric comes back and is like, oh, sorry if I look a mess. I just killed someone. Oops, didn't say that. Lol, anyway, are you marrying me or are we dying? What's going on? Christine steals his keys and tries to unlock the torture chamber, but that just clues Eric into the fact that there are indeed dudes in his torture chamber. <laughs> dudes in my torture chamber? It's more likely than you think. He takes the keys back from her, turns it on, taunting her while the room tortures Raul in the Persian with, like, heat and stuff. I'm not sure. Also, there's barrels of gunpowder. He's gonna blow up the opera. Also, water floods the chamber and Raul and the Persian start drowning. Like, write a song for this shit, you cowards. So it's decision time for Christine, and as Raul and the Persian lose consciousness, her decision is... The Persian. What do you mean? Save him. Oh, fuck Raul. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, seriously, fuck Raul. No, she agrees to marry Eric, and, and the opera and Raul and the Persian are saved. And the Persian wakes up in his own apartment. He passes out as she makes this decision, and he just wakes up in his own apartment not knowing anyone's fate. And he just learns in the newspaper that Philippe was found dead in the lake under the opera and that Eric must have killed him. That's the guy who he, like, walked out and killed while this was going on. And after this whole adventure, it's just like, okay, like, I'm done. Fuck it. I was in a torture chamber. That was bullshit. No more lurking in dark hallways. I'm going to the cops. Except the cops think he's fucking crazy. Womp womp. Either way, like, a day later, Eric just appears on his doorstep like, Daroga, my friend, I'm dying. And Persian's like, fuck you, bro. Did you kill Raul and Christine? And he's like, did you hear me? I said I'm dying. And Persian's like, I legitimately do not care. Until Eric's like, God, yes, they're both alive and fine. Christine kissed me and didn't gag or make icky noises. And my heart grew three sizes like the Grinch. So I let her and Raul run away together and get married. And now I'm dying of love feelings. Or arrhythmia. Hard to say. Anyway, bye. And then he dies three weeks later. In the epilogue, the narrator tells us that in Box 5, one of the pillars was hollow and wide enough for a man to fit in, which was how Eric would get in and out and also yell at people and fuck with them. And also that he ran away from his parents as a child because they were grossed out by him, and that he was in a freak show as a corpse boy, did rope murder in Persia, where he met Daroga and was commissioned to build a palace full of booby traps, but then also was going to be executed for knowing all the booby trap secrets, Daroga saved his life, got him exiled instead, which is how he, in turn, also wound up exiled. The narrator tells us that we should pity Eric, that he was a man of many talents. Music and song, architecture, rope murder, hockey coaching, and that if he wasn't born looking like Skeletor Jean Valjean, people wouldn't have been so shitty to him. And then maybe he wouldn't have grown up to be a weird, murdery, tunnel-dwelling incel. The end... <laughs> So, some things about the Phantom of the Opera. There is a general claim that the Phantom of the Opera is based on a true story, given how it opens. Well, the opera at the heart of the tale is inspired by the Palais Garnier, a very opulent opera in the heart of Little O Paris. So, the opera is very real. Apparently, at one point, the chandelier in the opera did fall and crash all over the ground. After those facts, things get kind of sketchy. Oh. According to at least one historian, when Rue was on his deathbed, he disclosed he wrote The Phantom because it was all true, and he needed to get the story out there. This deathbed confession and the story surrounding it was put out there by one Dr. John L. Flynn, a self-professed academic who wrote Phantoms of the Opera, the face behind the mask, and also wrote an introduction to the Signic Classics edition of Phantom. The story of the deathbed confession... And the idea that Phantom is based on fact has been repeated a lot. 
But when you trace the origins, it all goes back to this one Flynn piece. The thing is, Flynn is now known for peddling other untruths. My favorite is that he claimed that Rue was so fat that he could not attend a screening of the silent film version of Phantom because he couldn't fit. What the fuck? But in fact, we know that Rue did attend and actually gave a fairly glowing review. So uh, points against Flynn. So he's also a dickhead. Why is he like making up things about... Oh, he was fat, but not that fat. Ah. Other academics point out that Rue's notes from when he wrote Phantom exist, and it's clear this was a piece of fiction that was worked and reworked several times. And while Rue, maybe during the initial run of the novel, made claims that part of the story was based on truth, it is a marketing ploy akin to what Hollywood does today with every movie ever. <laughs> so no, Phantom is not based on some weird true story. Sorry to burst any bubbles. Darn. My fanfic. <laughs> Well, as long as the emphasis is on thick, you're good. <laughs> so, adaptations. Obviously, the thing that most people are going to be familiar with when I say Phantom of the Opera is the 1986 musical, so I don't feel the need to go super in-depth there. It was not the first musical adaptation, but that shouldn't be all that surprising. The, the novel takes place in an opera house. Half the characters are singers. Like, it's not that crazy. It was the first totally non-horror adaptation. Like, even the 1974 parody comedy by uh, Brian De Palma, Phantom of the Paradise, had horror elements in it. It's a rock musical, by the way. Also borrows stuff from Faust in the picture of Dorian Gray and has an evil record producer. It's pretty great. But anyway, I think it's more fun to look at adaptations for this in particular, like a timeline, like we did for Frankenstein, where it's sort of, how did we get from point A with the monster as this big, eloquent corpse man and his college dropout dad, to point B, with green grunting man with bolts in neck and Dr. Frankenstein. By which I mean we start with Eric Lucrypt-Kiper in 1910, and not quite 100 years later, we have Gerard Butler playing him with just like a, a little bitty scab over one eye. Just a little half mask to hide the shame of his horrible little bitty scab. Oh, and also the Persian disappears forever. And, and like I said, there's, you know, there's a long, rich history of people looking at the Persian, clearly, objectively, the best character in the book, and going, yeah, no. Long before Andrew Lloyd Webber got his musical mitts on the thing, and like I said also before, Lindsay Ellis did a very good video on YouTube about that that I recommend going to watch because she went way more in-depth than I could possibly go on this episode and cites Edward Said, who we mentioned before in like our Lit Theory uh, episode and his book, uh, Orientalism. And so you should just go watch that instead because she's really, really thorough about it and it's really interesting. And she talks about all the properties and reasons and things and the answer for a lot of it is racism. But anyway, so the biggest adaptations that created their own tropes that would become associated with the Phantom more than the original were, of course, you know, one of the biggest ones, the 1925 silent film with Lon Chaney, which follows the novel pretty closely and has Eric look pretty fucked up. Because, you know, Lon Chaney, one of Lon Chaney's biggest things that he was most famous for was his makeup, that they would kind of let him do his own thing with his makeup because he was real good at fucking himself up. And, and making himself look real gnarly to the point where they were telling people in the audience, like, make sure all the women have smelling salts at the ready. However, so the Persian, his character is basically exactly the same, but they did all these reshoots and they changed it up and now he's like a man named Ledoux for some reason. 
Le Doux. Le Doux. Yeah. Le Doux. Le Doux. What a name. Yeah. And also, Eric, they decided that the ending was too low-key and boring. So he's murdered by an angry mob now. And so, like you said, that that would be the thing that made Phantom way more of like a widespread thing. That people would become like way more aware of it when the movie kind of popped off. A 1943 version made the impetus for the Phantom to start a murdering a conductor stealing his musical compositions, which is the thing that would stick around in later adaptations, as well as the concept that he wasn't born deformed but disfigured through an accident with acid. For whatever reason, that one in particular would stick for a long time. A lot of different adaptations or even like parodies or references would take that and have this thing that he just wasn't always deformed, that he would be disfigured. And that's when you would see adaptations start moving away from the fucked up skull head and instead more like kind of the Harvey Dent, partially a normal dude face and just like a weird fucked up chunk. Hot. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, those pesky acid accidents. You never know when they'll come and get you. Or when they'll turn into Jack Nicholson. Well, that's the Joker. That's a different thing entirely. That's acid for you, baby. Uh, Then in 1962, our friends at Hammer Horror, who you may remember had great success with Frankie and Drac, had their terms The Phantom, and they basically just did the 1943 movie again, but this time with the special touch that would become synonymous with not just cartoon characters, see this is what we were thinking of in the beginning, not just cartoon characters parodying The Phantom of the Opera, but parodying spooky old-timey villain characters in general. I've always loved the Four Seasons. <laughs> Vivaldi, what a boss. <laughs> yes, the 1962 Phantom of the Opera adaptation is why we associate Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor as the quintessential spooky Halloween music. And was in fact a gag on, I don't know, either last year or the year before one of our Halloween episodes where I was trying to remember what was turns out is 1962's phantom of the opera that's why we think of that how about that how about that how about that and then yeah so over over the years i guess as uh, the book became public domain people wrote a whole bunch of very horny books fleshing out his backstory like a lot of the 52 literary adaptations slash reimaginings and sequels listed on Wikipedia, roughly half of them are about doing it with the Phantom, so yeah. Then I guess we gotta mention Love Never Dies, which was Andrew Lloyd Webber getting drunk on his own power and being like, yeah, I can make a sequel 23 years later to one of the biggest fucking musicals on Broadway. I made Cats. I can do whatever the fuck I want. Cats! Whoa! <laughs> the furriest in the universe. So he took all the unused music from like the shit ass 2004 Phantom movie and made Love Never Dies, aka Everyone Goes to New York for some reason, and also Eric's Not Dead, and tells Raul that he might have cucked him. (laughs) People didn't like it. (laughs) And here we are. And that takes us to the part of the show that we always get to. 
And that is Hey RJ. So Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. Good, bad, bone chilling. No, I don't think it's very spoopy. Not spoopy at all. Not, not particularly spoopy. Um, ducks fly together. <laughs> ducks do fly together. You know, I do think this is a good reinvention of the Gordon Bombay character from the Mighty Ducks. <laughs> I do like what they did here. You know, they really did build upon the cirrhosis of the liver. You know, that he's now jaundiced, um, having issues with his nose falling off. Maybe got lost in a bar fight of some type. And if I'm in a room and I hear, you know, whispers in the closet and I get closer and I hear quack. That might be effective. Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ. Phantom of the Opera. Yep. OG, old Gordo. Opera Gordon. Shutout or hat trick? I didn't, I didn't like Shutout it. Shutout or hat trick? I didn't like it. So there's the difficulty inherent in reading a translation, just, you know, in general, that... I, I'm sure I've said that on the show before, and if I haven't, well, that's bad on my part because we've read things that are translations that it, it's never going to hit in quite the same way as reading it in the original language. So that's always kind of an issue. I, I guess it's you know it's supposed to be a horror story, except we're also supposed to feel bad for Eric, but his whole backstory is just dumped into the epilogue. Like, oh, by the way, also I'm gonna go more in depth, but also just real quick. I have a huge problem with the thing that I told you to remember that Madame Giri talks about with the Phantom apparently bringing some lady into Box 5 who left her fan behind that one time. Remember that? Yeah. Who the fuck was that? We never get an answer. The whole crux of this fucking story is that Eric hates the world because he's the ugliest barnacle, but apparently some lady was just seeing operas with him on the DL. And we never learn more about it? I kept waiting to figure out what that was while LaRue painstakingly explained to me how Eric did, like, dumb fucking pickpocket shit to the managers that I left out because, like, who fucking cares? But I want to know about this, like, mysterious fucking side piece and we... we no. Nothing. Well, well, as it was published in Serial, I guess, the audience did not care. I care! It tested poorly. Anyway, Eric kind of sucks. Raul really sucks. Christine is not very interesting or compelling to me. The Persian fucking owns, but that's partly because at the point in the novel where he becomes an active presence and starts doing things, it's like a breath of fresh air because you're sick of these other assholes. So, you know, it's kind of like a relative thing. It's like, oh, thank God, someone who doesn't suck. But you're also like three quarters of the way through the book at that point. So, you know, is it at least spooky scary? Well, I mean, in the beginning, I guess when you don't know what's happening, just that, you know, everyone at the opera house is on edge about the ghost man, but then, you know, that's the problem. You, the reader, in the year of our Lord 2020, know that it's not a ghost, because even if you've never seen the musical, you still know that he's actually... Which I guess isn't the book's fault. Although, to be fair, this was a criticism, although not like a super common one, that LaRue did receive at the time that he was Gerard Butler. <laughs> uh, that you lost like the suspense and the tension once you learned that the Phantom was not in fact a Phantom, but just an ugly man doing things. 
like you said, that, that he was a, a man of heaven and earth or whatever. That's the fan of the opera. An ugly man doing things to people who are, for the most part, not particularly likable nor interesting. These are my hot takes in 2020. And that'll about do it for this episode of Oh No The Class. If you like the show, you don't need to give us 20,000 francs a month. You just need to maybe give us a rating or a review, subscribe, spread the word. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell the OG, tell the opera ghost. Follow us on Twitter at OnoLitClassPod. You can join the Facebook group. You can pledge to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash And you can find links to all those things and more at OnoLitClass.com. The spooky, scary Halloween content will continue on October 15th. But until then, I'm Megan. I'm still just RJ. You, you can be spooky, RJ. No. We love you. Bye. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> do, do. I don't know what you're referencing. <laughs> Breakfast Club, a stupid song. What? The song at the end. Oh, uh, hey, hey, yes. hey, hey. Well, okay, but you weren't doing it to, like, the thing. You were just sitting there going, hey, hey, hey. Yeah, it's a...